our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Salutations, everybody. It is Maddie here today, and welcome to episode 283 of the Ham Radio Podcast. Now, this episode is going to be quite different from any prior episode in the show's history, which can be both exciting and terrifying, so please do bear with me for a moment. Now, myself, Carrick, Dustin, we're all still on our holiday break, and fret not, next week we will be back to our normal show antics, debating ice cubes, socks, as well as the latest and greatest in gaming news. You know how our show rolls. We'll be back to that next week, but we didn't want to leave the show hanging for an empty week. We want to make sure you all have content to listen to, and I didn't want it to be a filler episode, right? I didn't want to do just myself talking and doing a Q&A, or just me and Dustin talking about random stuff. I thought, what would be the most valuable, worthwhile content? And then I had a eureka moment. So for the those who are unaware, I was working on a pandemic documentary at the end of last year and the beginning of this year. I sat down with multiple employees for this now closed studio who have been scattered across the industry and talked to them about their time at Pandemic. For those who are unaware, Pandemic Studios has brought us the likes of Destroy All Humans, Battlefront 1 and 2, as well as Lord of the Rings Conquest, The Saboteur, Mercenaries. I mean, the list goes on. They really were pathmakers in our industry. They did such phenomenal Phenomenal work on a bunch of incredible games, and they just kept having banger after banger after banger. So, as one of my favorite companies, I wanted to create a documentary about their studio and do a bit of a love letter, but also for people who are fans like me, unveil new information. So, I sat down with multiple employees and interviewed them, and you will get new information in this, but part of the reason I'm not doing the full on documentary and instead this is because my plans, and I was originally told, was to get design documents uh, as well as exclusive gameplay, you know, things that people have never, ever seen before. And unfortunately, given the fact that I am a startup documentary uh, creator, if that's even the right word, uh, it's really hard to get your hands on those assets. It's it's extremely hard because it demands a lot of trust and care that you're going to handle it properly. So it's just about the right people trusting you at the right time. Unfortunately for this documentary, I could not get my hands on that stuff. I kept asking, kept pushing. It's why I kept delaying it for months and months and months. And eventually I realized the project would never be what I wanted to be and I would always be unsatisfied and felt like I had underdelivered on something. So what I wanted to do with these interviews that do gleam a lot of brand new information that do give you some insight on the production, the process and the downfall of Pandemic Studios and some personal anecdotes is share with you the interviews I conducted. You'll be listening to three today. I did conduct more than that, but unfortunately in a couple, uh, you can't hear my voice. So there's just them talking to me. And in one case, somehow the file got deleted. So I figured once again there, I was like, all right, this is uh, clearly not meant to be in the way I wanted it to. But right now, what I have for you here today is going to be Cameron Brown, who really focused on Destroy All Humans, but he was there through a lot of the middle age, we'll say, of Pandemic. Then we also have Scott Warner, who focused primarily on the Mercenary series, as well as Tom French, who will wrap things up. Tom French focused mainly on the Saboteur, which ended up being the swan song game for Pandemic Studios as they closed down. It was a phenomenal open world game with a really unique style. And you'll kind of get their opinion, their impressions on how things worked, how things went, um, 
Unfortunately, uh, two of the interviews I lost were with uh, some of the higher ups, like the the CEO of the studio, you know, co-owner of the the studio. Uh, So I'm really frustrated by that. But I did communicate with the patrons who had signed on uh, for this project specifically on what we should do with that and uh, pass this idea along. We got approval uh, because I wanted to make sure it was okay with the people who were signing on for a certain product. And I'll make sure to make it up in a, a specific piece of content. I feel like you've seen it in the channel with its quality increase and the writing uh, as well as the, the backdrop and the studio space itself and the skits that we can do now. I feel like you've seen an increase in quality because of people's support over there, but I wanted to make sure I gave you like an actual physical piece of content to represent that. This was supposed to be it, but I thought that given the way things turned out, I would restart look for a new team, look for a new idea here, see if I can build something from the ground up myself where I don't have to rely on the handouts of other content. But with that all in mind, I want to present to all of you the interviews I conducted for this documentary. I do hope you all enjoy it, and I will introduce each person beforehand, and then you'll hear it roll on uh, and have me talking with all of these developers. And it's pretty cool stuff. It's um, definitely uh, at a time where, you know, last year I, I would say I was not the best interviewer because I wanted to really focus on just letting them speak so I'd ask them a very basic question and just try to poke in when I could so if it doesn't sound as interactive or as charismatic as uh, my my interviews nowadays do my discussions nowadays do it's because I had a different focus and goal there but enough of the um, you know rambling for me at this point I'm sure you want to hear the content if you're still here I just want to make sure there was a thorough explanation up front of what's happening with this content as well as um, you know what was happening before all of this. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, I do hope you enjoy this. You will learn something new today. I can promise you that. And if you are new to Pandemic Studios, then please do look into their games. I'm sure these interviews will shine some light on some interesting stuff. Also, one last note, because OBS is a absolute turd of a program, I used that to record the interview so it would capture myself as well as my desktop when I was interviewing everybody. Sometimes my end will spike a little bit on the audio end. So I would just recommend bumping down the volume on your listening device, whether it's computer or your phone, just a little bit. I've gone into the actual recordings and tried to edit them where I can, but still you hear a little bit of a spike in my audio. So just so that you're not shocked or you jump a little bit, just a quick, small volume warning. Sometimes it just happens. I just want to make you all aware of that. Now on with the show. And with that, it's time for me to sign out. Let me know what you think of all of this in the comments and I'll talk with you soon. Stay sexy, stay active. I love you all. Peace. Okay, so let's let the interviews begin. It's all with Cameron Brown, who focused mostly on Destroy All Humans. Okay, so I'm Cameron Brown. Um, I was creative director at uh, Pandemic for about 10 years, um, mainly on the Mercenaries series, so Mercs 1, Mercs 2. Um, since Pandemic, I, uh, I've worked at Microsoft um, on the HoloLens program, so kind of making crazy, uh, crazy futuristic <laughs> holographic headsets. And then... Um, about three and a half years ago, left to start my own company called Rec Room. Um, so we make a kind of virtual social club where people create and play games um, that's now shipped on all the VR headsets. It's on PlayStation. It's on iOS. Uh, it's all over the place. Nice, nice. Okay. So let's let's talk pandemic. <clears throat> the, the reason yeah. I was contacting you so frequently is because Scott's exact words were, you were the most influential and important person at Pandemic. Now, I know that's <laughs> very high praise, uh, but I would, I would like s- to know from your perspective why you think that may be the case, even if maybe you disagree or not. I don't know, but why, do you, why, well, why would that be the case? 
Well, Scott's, Scott is wrong about many, many things, and this is just one of them. Um, so, yeah, no, I mean, well, A, like, I think many people would uh, challenge that characterization, I think, very fairly. Like, Pandemic was a big company. Um, you know, we had, uh, you know, usually four teams, uh, three in L.A., one in, in Brisbane, Australia. Um, so there, there was a lot of people contributing to Pandemic. So I, I want to reject the any any sense of me being the most important person. Um <laughs> The, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, that, that said, I had a huge opportunity at Pandemic. I started there in, um, I want to say 2000, 2001, um, coming over as kind of a lead designer. You know, I'd been, I grew up in Australia and I kind of came up through the Australian game industry. Um, and when I got to Pandemic, it was, you know, I think just uh, uh, as much good fortune as anything else that there was kind of a creative opening um, on one of the teams where they, they needed creative leadership. Um, and so I kind of put my hand up and said, Hey, you know, I'll, um, I'm happy to do this. And kind of the, that ended up being the genesis of the mercenaries project, um, was that team. We kind of like started making prototypes and started making various things to, uh, to pitch to various publishers. Um, and so we were noodling around with like third person games and kind of, uh, you know, kind of top down arcade console shooters. And I remember, um, you know, it was around the time that, uh, that GTA three had come out. And so we're all very influenced by GTA three and uh, you know, that, that kind of open world design, you know, I'm a very systemic designer by nature. That's kind of what gets my creative juices flowing. So like GTA was like, uh, you know, just catnip for me. And yeah. so we, we were kind of working in this military space, you know, we had like tanks and helicopters and like making a shoot 'em up game. And we, and like, you know, honestly, the, the big simple idea behind mercenaries was, uh, you know, what if GTA, but in a war zone? That was yeah. basically the idea. That's funny, because uh, um, when I was talking to Scott, that's kind of how I, I worded it, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was it, was, it was that simple. We're like, well, this is an amazing style of gameplay. You know, obviously, that, that's, uh, you know, you know the, the success of GTA is testament to that. Um, but we thought, hey, you know, what if, what if we did that, but with more explosions? <laughs> and um, and uh, I think, you know, talking to, so one of the founders of Pandemic was uh, Andrew Goldman. Um, and I remember talking to him and we were chatting about this idea of like, you know, we were both really uh, vibing on GTA a lot. And um, and he he was thinking through, you know, well, what, you know, if you're a soldier, the whole thing about being a soldier is you got to follow orders. You got to do what you're told. You kind of put in a box that doesn't really feel like conducive to open world gameplay. So he was like, well, what if you're a mercenary? You know, what if you're like a hired gun and um, you didn't really have to follow orders? You just had to follow the money. And we were like. All right, mm-hmm. that that works, right? So that 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 persona put into that gameplay style, um, just everything kind of clicked into the place. And so <laughs> the next probably six or seven years of, of my creative life were developing on that idea. Wow, yeah, and uh, it certainly worked out. I mean, the, the games are great, and it Thanks. seemed like the open world almost, there was a set of rules, but it still felt sandboxy. It was in the, the DNA of Pandemic, in a sense, uh, when you look yeah. at the Saboteur, Mercenaries. I mean, um, was that like a, a, like a trend you guys ended up following? Because the industry is, as you've seen nowadays, I think, like it's sort of shifted into just everything has to be open world. But um, yeah. did you guys think you were onto something there? Or was that more like it just fit the world space for, for your game ideas? Yeah, I mean, I, well, I think, hmm, I'm not sure how to answer that. I mean, I think... You know, probably there was a little bit more intention behind it from um, from. I'm thinking here of uh, Greg Baruch, who's another one of the founders, and who, who was very kind of influential in uh, 
in kind of uh, driving a lot of the projects. I know I know he had a strong theory about the genre of games we would work in, which would, would kind of, you know, he was big into third-person action, big into things that kind of had, like, uh, you know, strong fantasies around them. Like, you know, you want to be, uh, you know, a, a mercenary or you want to be in Lord of the Rings or you want to be in Star Wars. Um, and so, yeah, I think there was kind of like, we felt like we found a niche of these third-person open-world action games that really suited the personality of the company, suited the people who were working on them. Um, and yeah, but just really fun games, you know, into it. So I think, yeah, I think we did specialize. I think we're like, hey, we got a bit of a, we got a bit of a formula here that works. Um, let's go explore and see what kind of different things we can make there. Interesting, yeah, because you you sort of had like two formulas. You had the open world sandboxy formula, but you also had the I guess you could call it the battlefront formula, which you saw get carried into Lord of the Rings Conquest. So it's kind of cool. You guys had yeah. these two paths of games that were yeah. so unique at their times, and. Um, so I know there was a Mercenaries one, two, and you guys were working on a three. Um, That's right. Would, would you guys want? Would you mind talking about that a little bit? I guess just the development <laughs> of it. Um, how yeah, that all sure. Went, yeah. The ideas behind it. Yeah, I mean, so so we had done Mercs one and Mercs two, and you know, our, our kind of thinking for the the setting of the Mercenaries games was we always wanted something kind of over the top, but something that felt kind of uh, you know ripped from the headlines. Uh, you know, was was our thinking at the time, um, and. Uh, and yeah, so we had done a game set in you know North Korea, which was kind of a you know crazy potential flashpoint, entirely too relevant in in, to, in today's climate. I, I hate to say it. Same with Venezuela, like you know, yeah. not not sure I would choose to make games on those topics uh, now. But um, anyway, yeah, was, this was 10, 10, 15 years ago, so different time. But um, yeah, the, the the idea for the third one was let's go global, right? Let's let's have it not be set in one place. Let's kind of you know, go around the world, go to really different, like, you know, one of, one of the inspirations for when we were choosing the settings for the mercenaries was, was we, we wanted to put it in places that just hadn't been featured in games, you know, either, either not at all or not very much, you know, that was our intent. Um, and so, yeah, I remember we had a test level was, uh, was set in Dubai in the UAE Wow. was, um, we remember doing this, we were doing this research of like, you know, what are, what are some of the craziest places that um you know that people haven't really visited haven't really been in a in a game and uh so yeah for mercury i remember we were excited by there's apparently in, in dubai there is a well actually i ended up visiting it many years later but there is a, a an indoor ski slope in dubai which is like right in the middle of the desert and it's just this giant air-conditioned building with artificial snow and like a kind of alpine village in it and um we're like well that's kind of a crazy place that you know could be kind of interesting and there's kind of an interesting oil connection in dubai and the uae you know which gives us that kind of like you know geopolitical intrigue that you know that was kind of a backstory in in the second one and um so yeah so we were going to dubai we had a the game started in cuba which was really cool we had this kind of cool cuban level um and yeah, so we didn't really get that far. We were only prototyping it. Um, but um, yeah, the idea was to go global. And um, and yeah, I, I, <laughs> I remember it starting with, um, I think the, the kind of uh, like geopolitical incident that we were kind of talking about was like, was global warming was opening up the Arctic Circle. Oh, and wow. all of them, all of the major superpowers were like vying for control of the shipping channels and stuff up there. It was bringing them into conflict. You know, Russia was kind of coming up mm-hmm. to the north. You know, the U.S. is coming up to the north, and everyone's getting all angsty. So yeah, the idea was, and I have some concept out of this, which was pretty cool. Um, 
was like the end of it was going to be up in the Arctic somewhere, this kind of crazy ice level. <laughs> so yeah, it was pretty ambitious. Like we had a we had a pretty big pretty big dream for for Mercenaries Three that um, that unfortunately never saw the light of day because of because uh, because because uh, the end of the studio. Right. But um, we had a playable prototype built in the Mercs Two engine. Um, I remember we were starting to play with um, kind of. Uh, some of those kind of Boston Dynamics kind of security robot kind of stuff. Like we had these crazy like spider robots that were walking around and stuff. Like, so in a way we were kind of all over the place. I think we were like still in that very, you know, it's pretty typical early in a game you go super, super broad and we hadn't really narrowed it down okay. to, uh, to a really clear idea yet. We, um, Oh, I remember another fun idea from, uh, from, from Mercs three was uh, we were going to give you a, a kind of X, uh, an X military. What are those, what are those helicopters with the two rotors that rotate? Okay. Um, what are those I, ones? I know, I know what you're talking about. I can see it. In Hang on a second. Hang on. Hold, hold right. Stay there for one second. Yeah, no problem. I'm coming back. All right. This is great. <laughs> Actually, I have this next door because I like this is a piece of concept art that I saved from Mercs 3 that I really liked. The uh, Can you see this? Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was like this graffiti-covered, like whatever. The, I forget the name of that aircraft but they're like a cool you know tilt rotor thing like and that was going to be like your flying your flying home base like where you kind of land and uh okay. you know because you're going like all around the world right so you're like land yeah, in a country that was gonna be my my next question was you know how what was the the way from getting to all these different locations in the world so i'm guessing that was it yeah that was it yeah okay all right yeah mm-hmm. it's, it sounded interesting and and you said you didn't get that far into it when did development actually start if you recall Oh God! Um, so I am terrible with dates and have no memory for that kind of thing. But it must have been. It was probably like you know we spent. I, I, I don't know. I'm guessing 2009. Okay. Yeah. Um, a ballpark. I was just. Yeah. Curious. Yeah. It would have been 2009 ish. Okay. So you were working on one crazy series, and then there was another called uh, "Destroy All Humans." So I guess yeah. before we get to more finer questions on that what did you necessarily do with that because i remember when i was looking at your linkedin it just said you helped a bunch on it so i don't know what that entails yeah yeah i mean that's a pretty accurate description so like so i i didn't i wasn't involved with the start of that project that that came out of our australian studio and so even though i'm australian i never really worked at the australian pandemic studio um although i do know a lot of the people there you know because australian game industry is a small place so like yes, everyone exactly. tends to know each other um and so, yeah, that 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 game had kind of they came up with that idea. They'd been working on it for a couple of years. Um, you know, it was always just such an amazingly cool concept. Um, you know, be the alien in a fifties, uh, you know, B movie. Just such a fun, awesome concept. And so, and they but you know looked amazing. Um, they had built a lot of really cool features. They had some just some really funny stuff in there. Um, but you know, it was getting close to that, you know, to when they were due to ship and they were having a little bit of trouble just kind of getting it over the line. Like they're like, they're just in the very closing phases. So I, I went and worked on it for probably like only three months or so, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kind of flew over from the LA office and kind of, I basically just parachuted in to help them finish it. Like, cause I think it's fair to say they were pretty exhausted. Like it was a big game. It was their first open world game. Um, you know, they had definitely run into some technical challenges and some design challenges. And so, yeah, I, I, I can't claim too much credit. I, I, okay. I think it's fair to say I just kind of helped them focus it up at the end and make some make some kind of final cutting decisions, like where, where some things weren't working, maybe we could cut them, 
where some things weren't working and maybe we could invest a little more and get it over the line. Mm-hmm. Kind of, I think, you know, I, I remember working with, um, I think it was THQ at the time who was publishing, working with them to negotiate a little bit of extra time to kind of polish the game up. Um, so yeah, all I really did was kind of just help them focus and, and polish it up to, to ship. Um, and yeah, we ended up being like really, really happy with that game when it shipped. It, it was an amazingly fun uh, yeah. <laughs> experience oh, when it came out. <laughs> so that's interesting um, to hear that perspective that you, you sort of just kind of dropped in there. What, you know, so was this a game you kind of just heard about at, at your other studio? Did you ever see anything for this? And then you sort of dropped yeah, it? Yeah, we, I mean, so yeah, we would share builds back and forth. So they would send builds over from time to time. Okay. And so we would sit down in the LA studio. And we, so I was pretty familiar with what they were doing. And we had been sending them feedback. And we had seen their E3 demo, of course. They came over for E3. And, um, you know, THQ did. There was a big crazy booth at E3 with a UFO mm-hmm. in it and stuff. And so, so we, I was very familiar with the concept. Um, and you know, knew knew what was going on, but yeah, never really thought about working on it until uh, yeah, I forget who came to me and was like, hey, you know, you know, I think we think we need we need some help getting this one across the line. Um, you know, do you want to do you want to go help out? And I was like, yeah, cool. You know, I, I'm from Australia. I'll go back and visit the homeland and <laughs> spend a couple of months there helping out. It's, it seems like fun to me. I forgot how hot it was, so uh, that that part I regret. <laughs> So was this a game, you know, that because you, you you said you kind of dropped in in the last three months and helped shape mm-hmm. it up, and I was just wondering, um, with modern game development, is that you know is the window much bigger now, or was that because you know back then working on the the PS2 and, and whatnot? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely fair to say, like, well, so full disclosure, I'm kind of I've been out of the AAA game for a while, right? You know, like I, I kind of moved on to you know prototyping, you know VR AR stuff and. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and now make a game that's, you know, that is, you know, kind of a live online creative service as much as a AAA game. So, like, don't quote me on, you know, production estimates yeah, for AAA games. Yeah, just your perspective, I guess. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it definitely it was, like, in the PS2 era, um, you know, the lead times for assets, for building things, for polishing things was definitely much shorter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just the, just the, the level of complexity was, was, was lower. Um, so I remember even going to the PS3 and and um, and uh, Xbox 360 era was you know added a lot of time and a lot of you know just extra polish. Um, so yeah, I think I think it was possible to make a make a pretty impactful um, difference in in a few months um, in a way that probably would be much harder if you know kind of like trying to parachute into something like, you know, a modern Assassin's Creed or something like, <laughs> oh God, <laughs> you know, or, you know, you'd be helping fix some bugs maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so the other thing I wanted to ask is because, you know, the mercenaries uh, during this time with, um, with, with destroy all humans, I think battlefront was, was just around the time of coming out or something like that. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of, consumers define that as the golden age of pandemic um i thought everything you guys did was great but that was like that wow they dropped (laughs) like three amazing games in the same year uh i just want to know was it as nice on the inside as it was on the outside being a consumer (laughs) Uh, yeah i mean my memory of like so i think i want to say i think mercenaries shipped in 2005 Mm-hmm. I think we, yeah, I think we shipped Mercenaries and Battlefront and Destroy Humans in 2005, I want to yes. say, something yeah. like that. Um, and yeah, I mean, yeah, that was a really, really fun uh, couple of years. Like we really, in my, in my, my take on it is definitely like, that was when we really hit our stride. I think that was when we were at our strongest. I think the, 
our methodologies of working, our production methodologies, our team sizes, um, our uh, you know the amount of time we were kind of allocating to make a game, I think really matched the PS2 scale games best. Um, oh, and I think I think I think it definitely took some some adaptation for us to learn um, what it was going to be like to make a game for the PS3. You know, it was like everything kind of got leveled up in terms of complexity and um, and cost and size and scale. And so, yeah, from memory, like I, I remember, you know, I'm I'm proud of everything we did too. I think um, I think it was definitely more fun to make the PS2 era games. They were a bit of a lighter lift, and um, you could be a little more agile and creative in your decision making. Um, I think the the later games felt a lot heavier, and um, you know, were they were much more big oil tankers that were much harder to steer. Whereas the the earlier games were were a little lighter. But yeah, yeah. Two thousand five was a was a it was a, a very fun year for pandemic. Um, you know, I remember like it was it was really fun to ship those games after working on them for for several years and seeing the 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 reaction from the from people who were playing it. You know, there's a lot of excitement. You know, it was it was very fun. It was kind of like early days from my perspective, at least, of like you know engaging with people on the internet. It was still like I kind of came up from a very traditional. You know sounds funny to say, but a very kind of traditional game development background where we would like make a console game and then ship it. And like, you only had this really indirect, like, you know, Twitch didn't exist and discord didn't exist. So it wasn't, it wasn't as common to like, (laughs) yeah, yeah. It it wasn't as common to kind of talk to people. So, so we'd kind of been like developing the game more or less in a vacuum for two or three years. And then it finally came out and we were like, are people going to like it? We don't know. Could do nothing. (laughs) And, you know, so the fact that, you know, people bought it and, you know, people sent us excited letters and, you know, I still have letters. I still have a few letters from kids. Actually, there was a funny Reddit thread not so long ago where um, where uh, someone posted uh, a letter that I had written. So they had written in to Pandemic and they had said, oh, I like Mercenaries. It's my favorite game, blah, 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 like whatever. And um, and, I, and I wrote a letter back to them, like, because oh, I always wow. would try and write back, because I always thought it was really, I, I was just really was touched when people would write a letter, and it was like, you know, you know, I remember when I was a kid, how, how excited I would get about games and music and stuff that I liked, so anytime that someone was, like, excited about a game that we made, I was like, this is so cool, so I wrote back to this person, and then, like, 10 years later, they had a photo of the letter, and they posted it to Reddit, just going, hey, here's a letter I got from Pandemic. And wow. oh, so I woke up that morning and people kept sending me this Reddit thread. <laughs> and I was like, this is, this is hilarious. And I went in there and was like, oh yeah, that's a letter I wrote. I had no memory of writing it. And it's so mm-hmm. thank God I wrote nice things. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and yeah, and, and so I'm pretty active on Reddit. Um, and so I, I went and uh, I went into the thread and was like, hey, that's me. Glad you liked the letter, blah, blah, blah. And it was just a really funny moment of like 10 years later, connecting back up with this person who liked the game. That's crazy. Just, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and speaking of, you know, wrapping around, I, I was thinking of Destroy All Humans and, and we can go back to that. You know, they're they're remaking the first one. And what's it like working on the original and then seeing this come back and, and like it's still that same amount of excitement and people are pretty crazy about it? Yeah, I mean I mean I think it's pretty cool. I mean I honestly haven't been paying super close attention. Um right. but it, you it know, look, I think like it's the same I game think except it's... on current tech. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I I think I saw it briefly at E3 this year, and like I'm like, that's cool. It's like um, it, it's testament to the strength of the original concept. You know, it's like if you're gonna, you know, it has to be a pretty pretty good idea to come mm-hmm. back, you know, ten fifteen years later, and it still makes sense, um, you know, to a to a, a younger audience and with newer tech. Like I think that's kind of sort of demonstrates that it was a pretty strong idea. Yeah. 
Did you, uh, also, you, I remember you saying, like, you, you decided sort of some things that could be cut or some things that would be uh, staying into the main game. Was there anything in Destroy All Humans that um, I wouldn't say maybe you had the final decision on, but there was a team decision that uh, you cut or kept, and, and did you guys afterwards go, oh, thank God we kept that, or or vice versa, <laughs> uh, well, like, I mean, should have kept that? <laughs> so, I mean, definitely there were things that we were like, all right, you know, obviously we got to keep this. You know, it's funny to say it, but the, um, but the, the, the famous anal probe weapon that they made, um, you know, was just like, that's just too funny. Like, mm-hmm. like that's kind of unique in a game. You have to keep that. Um, I remember we had long, you know, torturous conversations about the jetpack um, that that the character could do. Because on the one hand, it was a super fun mechanic where you could be like, "Oh, it's really fun to fly around. It's really well tuned. They did a great job implementing it, so it was really you know fun to 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 use." On the other hand, it created a lot of level design challenges because it was like, you know, in mercenaries, a lot of the level design we did. Um, you know, one of the level design tricks we would use is just kind of like if you're designing a mercenaries mission, you know, flip your perspective around to be like, all right, pretend you're the bad guys and pretend you're trying to defend this building. How would you defend? So, so get into get into the into the objective looking out and like, where would you park the trucks to block off the entrances? And where would you you know, where are the, hmm. you know, the point, the vulnerable points that you'd be defending? And, and we found that doing it that way would often create a fairly natural feeling, you know, when you then flipped it back and you were coming to invade that, that defended base, it would have a more realistic feel because it felt like someone really kind of like thought through, you know, the way you would actually defend it. Um, and if you add a jetpack to that mix um, and you can just suddenly hop over all of those defenses and just kind of land behind everybody, um, it's, you know, it's not impossible. And I think we ended up getting a, a fairly, fairly good balance, but it was definitely a, I remember having discussions where like, man, this jetpack's fun, but can we actually make coherent level design when you can just have a super jump that you can just traverse over half of it? So that was definitely a tough decision. Um, I remember the funniest thing to, from my perspective, and uh, and I, I can connect you up probably with some of the other Destroyer Humans people who, who uh, can defend themselves from this from this story I'm going to tell. Um, but but I remember like they, they I think it's fair to say that they were they were pretty exhausted and overwhelmed towards the end of that project. It was just you know these even even PS2 games are really hard to make. You know there it's a lot of work um, and. Uh, so yeah, they were definitely feeling, I think, under the gun. They were, they were like running low on time. They were like trying to get everything finished. And so like, you know, me, this idiot coming over from the LA studio kind of just parachutes in one day. And I'm like, all right, well, first of all, we just got to understand where we're at. So I remember we spent, man, it must've been like, <laughs> in my memory, it's like 48 hours straight. We kind of just like went into one of the conference rooms and we're like, all right, we're going to diagram out, diagram out the entire game from the moment you put the DVD in the tray until the moment the final ending cinematic plays and we're just like you know just drew it up on the whiteboard and like we were like grabbing people like all right who knows what the status of this mission is who knows what the state we're like dragging them in and like pulling all this stuff and i remember we just had this hilarious moment where we're like because like you know part of what was being revealed to me on that board was like here's the story of the game right because i wasn't that familiar with with all of these else so like it was like all right you know so you do this and you get abducted here and this happens there and blah 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 and there was just this gap in the middle where it was, I forget what the story beat was, but it was like, you know, it was something like your UFO gets shot down or something. Spoiler warning for Destroy no, <laughs> Humans 1. Sure okay. the, um, you know, something like, your, uh, something like your UFO gets shot down. And I remember going, um, and yeah, so we had, had that written on the whiteboard. Yeah, you, like, you take off, your UFO gets shot down, and then you're in, you're in government, in the government Area 51 facility or whatever. And, 
And I was like, okay, how does the player know that happened? And like, I just remember like people looking at each other and they're going, well, I think it happens in gameplay, right? And the other person's like, no, I think it, that happens in a cutscene, right? And we just like had this kind of, we had this awkward moment where everyone in the room realized we had just forgotten to make this piece of content and there was no actual story beat that was going to tell you that like, you were just going to go from, you're about to get in your UFO and then you're going to, then suddenly you're going to be in Area 51 and there was no like explanation. Wow. And so I remember that on that day, I was like, I called back to LA and I was like, yeah, we're going to have to make an emergency cutscene here. Like we need, we need to, we need to clear off some, some space in someone's schedule to go make a UFO get shut down cutscene. That's my memory of it. I, I, if, if any Destroy All Humans people remember it differently and I'm, I'm telling the story wrong, I, I apologize. But that, that's, that's my memory of it. I definitely remember that kind of just funny, it was almost like a scene from The Office kind of moment where it's like, <laughs> just like, you did this, right? No, you, you did this. I, like, and just that realization that this was just a completely unaccounted for chunk of work. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously you guys had your great years and, and sadly eventually a pandemic did close down and... I remember when I was talking to Scott, he thought it was because there was so much ambition. You guys sort of got ahead of yourself, became spread too thin. And I just want to know how you felt, uh, pandemic's closure, what led to it, and Um, what happened overall. Well, look, I mean, I think, I mean, I think there's, I think you'd probably get a lot of different answers from a lot of different people. And I think there's a lot of different contributing factors, um, and, uh, but yeah, I think it's fair to say, like, I think we kind of, um, I don't think we managed the transition to PS3 era, um, development super well. Um, you know, I know just, just talking about the mercenaries team, like, I think, you know, we made a decision to, to redo a lot of our technology between the two games, um, which kind of made sense at the time. We were like, hey, you know, this this Mercs, the, the game we made, the engine we used to make Mercs 1 was already pretty old and it had a lot of limitations. Um, and so we're like, all right, we got this new hardware. It's all crazy powerful. Um, let's make a new engine to uh, to kind of, uh, um, to like leverage all the power of these new new consoles. And in retrospect, I think that was a mistake we made. Like that was like, um, it ended up taking, you know, it seems obvious in retrospect, but at the time I didn't know this. Like it, it, uh, it took way longer to make the new engine than I would have guessed. You know, probably like a year or two longer than I would have guessed. Wow! And so that took up a lot of time, um, and just yeah, put you know meant, meant we had to put a lot of time, and a lot of people into just building new technology, which wasn't able to go into you know iterating on the game. Um, and so I think that dynamic uh, kind of played out in a few different ways. Like just you know these games just ended up. I think we were surprised by how much harder it was to make games for what at the time was the next gen consoles. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I think it's fair to say like something like the PS3, I think even Sony, um, you know, I think, but after the PS3, they were like, wow, that's, that thing is too hard to make games for. And the whole, you know, the whole idea of the PlayStation 4 was let's get back to basics. Let's make it easier for the developers. Let's provide really good tools. Let's make this thing a comprehensible architecture that you can actually <laughs> wrap your head around. And it's much easier to like make, make cross-platform games. Um, you know, so I think even Sony kind of were like, oof, we may, may have overdone it with the PS3. So, yeah, I think we, I think that was a big part of it. We kind of got caught in that console transition. We just, we kind of stumbled on that one a bit. Um, you know, but then I also think like things have a lifespan, you know, I, uh, you know, I think, you know, the, the biggest bummer for me was just, we had a bunch of really great teams and a bunch of really great people who lost their jobs. You know, that was the, by far the worst part of it from my perspective, 
from from me personally, you know, honestly, I was kind of ready for the next chapter. I was like, you know, I I, I would have had had fun making Mercenaries Three. I was also ready to move on to different kinds of you know creative challenges and different kind of games. So like, I was like, yeah, I was pretty philosophical about it even at the time. Um, you know, it was like a, a decade is a long time to do anything, right? Um, and so I was kind of like, yeah, this this feels like a natural end to things. Um, you know, there's also obviously the the, the cliche in the games industry of, of EA buying studios only to shut them down. <laughs> uh, you know, it's 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 almost in a way like, well, I, I won't say it's an honor to be on that list, but I will say it's kind of uh, it's kind of funny to just be you know one of one of those in the list of, uh, of, of EA acquisition casualties. You know, but yeah, but I, I don't want to make light of it. The the like I said the. The worst part of it to me was just, you know, we had a lot of people who, who you know, had to go and find a new job in, in an expensive city. Um, and I think, I think, I think, you know, from my perspective, it, it seems like the, the pandemic uh, diaspora has done really well. Like, it's amazing. Like, you go all around the world into game studios and you'll find ex-pandemic DNA everywhere, you know. And so that's really, really cool. Like, um, and I think it's, it's, it's kind of a pretty good alumni network that exists of like, you know, ex pandemic people kind of keeping tabs on each other. It's almost like a cult. Like when I, when I was looking (laughs) up people to talk to about this project, just, I felt like everywhere I looked, you know, there's just crops of ex pandemic employees. That's right. The the pandemic Illuminati. We're we're, we're secretly (laughs) behind everything now. Um, no, you know, I think it's, uh, so yeah, it, it, it was tough and a shame. And I know, I, I think uh, a lot of people took it really hard. Um, but, um, you know, look, things come to an end. They have to, you know, not everything can last forever. And uh, I, I prefer to think back and look back on, man, we had an amazing run, you know, like, oh, gosh, yeah. it's, it's, you know, it, it's, it's, I feel very fortunate to be part of a company that, 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 that got to have that string of successes and got to work on, you know, we, we had a lot of creative freedom and we had a lot of uh, autonomy to do the things the way we the way we wanted to, which was, you know, that was good and bad, you know, and sometimes that was really good. And sometimes we would make uh, decisions like, hey, let's rewrite our technology. And we had enough autonomy to do that. And uh, maybe that didn't work out so good. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just crazy how <clears throat> it was like, when went so high and then it just it was like the games didn't get worse that's the crazy part usually <laughs> you see a a diminishing equality and then you know the sales reflect that but uh the final... yeah I think there's something kind of nice about like uh about saboteur being the swan song you know i think i think oh, we closed gosh, yeah. on a really closed on a really strong note and it's it's always delightful to me to see you know what an amazing you know you mentioned a cult like what a cult following the saboteur has you know like it's you know you, you still see it on Reddit and stuff to this day. People are like, oh man, that game was amazing and ahead of its time. And um, you know, and yeah, that was a that was a real labor of love for that team. And and um, you know, I, I I know a bunch of the people on that team, um, and I know the love they have for each other to this day. You know, I think they 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 went through a really long, challenging development experience together and really grew as as developers. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know, and created something really unique and amazing. Yeah, because there's nothing like it. The whole black and white and then adding color to the world. Yeah. There's still to this day nothing like it. And that's sort of, I think, what made Pandemic so special is, is such as Battlefront where they go, hey, what if you just played as like a normal stormtrooper and put them yeah. on the battlefield? Like, wouldn't that be cool? And the same thing yeah. with Lord of the Rings Conquest. And Mercenaries, like, as you said, GTA in a war zone. I feel like each mm-hmm. of these games just had a very unique uh, genesis, like a, a thought that that was built around that that's made each of them so unique. And that's yeah. why it's such a strong pedigree. 
Yeah, you know, and I think a lot of that is testament to the pandemic founders, honestly. So there was, uh, you know, Josh, Andrew, and Greg were the three founders, and that they, they were president, CEO, and EP, executive producer. And I think they all had really unique strengths that helped us get there. Like, I think, you know, Josh was just a great salesman and uh, just a really great representative for the company, and he could sort of go in and, like, get us deals and get us funding and just be really persuasive and a great frontman for the company. Um, you know, and a great businessman, you know, really good at like making sure we had the right money. So, you know, he, he, he was, he was excellent in that role. Andrew was very much a kind of behind the scenes creative. And like, I, you know, certainly on mercenaries, I worked with him pretty closely on that. And, you know, he, he was very good at kind of, uh, like helping boil things down to that simple one sentence concept. Like that was something I feel like I learned from him during my time at pandemic was the value of being able to summarize an idea in that one sentence. Like that's how you kind of keep, you know, when you're going to have something that's worked on, um, you know, by hundreds of people over multiple years, you need something really simple to that people can look at in the horizon and go, all right, that's where we're going. We're, we get, we're, we're trying to make GTA in a war zone. Like, you know, there's a lot of complexity around that, but big, simple idea. Like you can kind of keep, you can kind of keep everything straight. Um, and, uh, so Andrew, I think was really good at kind of, uh, at helping boil things down to that level. And then Greg is just, he was my memory of him. Like he, he's, he's still in game, still doing amazing stuff. Um, but yeah, he was just a production powerhouse. Like he was just really, really, uh, great at getting things organized and making sure that everything was on track and like, you know, helping teams figure out the right plan to get things done. Kind of a hot ass, you know, he'd be, uh, he would come and kick our ass from time to time. But, um, you know, I think he was he was a real kind of, uh, uh, you know, prime mover behind, you know, just getting these projects done and shipped. And, you know, a lot of that hard work of, you know, actually turning them into real products. Um, so, yeah. So I think that was part of the pandemic magic from my perspective was those three founders really complemented each other uh, in important ways. And, uh, you know, and we're, we're very trusting of like, you know, me, some idiot from Australia who's like, yeah, I'll design a game. And they, you know, they gave me a lot of creative freedom to kind of go and, uh, you know, go and take a lot of creative risks and, and try a bunch of things. You know, I think most of which worked out, um, you know, not all of them, but, but most of them. Yeah, I mean, it seems like everything panned out as, as good as it possibly could have in the scheme of things. Everything, everything pandemic out? <laughs> I was going to say, I, I almost stumbled into a little pun there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that that's my list of questions, man. Uh, yeah. Unless there's anything you wanted to add on at the end there for yourself or... Uh, something that maybe you wanted to talk about that um, I maybe didn't broach with a, a question. Uh, no, I know. I think, I mean, I think we, I think we pretty much covered it, you know, like yeah. it, it was, it was a, a, it's a time I look back very fondly in my career. I think, I think I learned a ton. I think I met a bunch of amazing people. So I'm just super grateful to, to have been a part of it. Um, you know, if like, and like one thing I will say, like, I think people should come and follow me on Twitter at Gribbly. Yes. Um, like my, my feed is two things. It's me, uh, promoting my new game rec room. So everyone should come and play rec room. And two, it's like, I basically, I retweet game jobs. So I'm, I'm really interested in bringing new people into game development. Um, and you know, if people have questions or they want, you know, just want to ping, ping me about stuff, like I'd be happy to be just kind of like, I'd, I'd like to help more people, you know, get oriented, get into the industry. Um, you know, 
figure out what priorities are important for getting into the industry these days. So yeah, if, if people want to come and connect with me on Twitter, I'd love to talk about that stuff. Perfect. All right. We'll have that on screen. And, uh, All right. you know, I, I appreciate you taking the time to, to do this with me. I know you're a busy guy and, uh, your, your input and feedback is, is very valuable. Yeah, no, well, thank you. Thanks for being interested in, uh, in our crazy old company. Of course, man. <laughs> All right, and we'll, we'll wrap it up there. So Next up, we've got Scott Warner. Scott Warner focused on the Mercenaries franchise. So here we go. This is, once again, Scott Warner. You're going to riff or you're going to ask me some questions? <laughs> no, I, have, I have questions. I was just going to – I'm saying, like, you can sure. just start off by telling me, like, your position at, at Pandemic, what, like, what you did there, what you do now, and, and kind of just talk a little bit about your time there, you know, the good, the bad, if there was bad. Mm-hmm. And uh, go for it. Well, uh, I was at Pandemic about eight years, I think. Um, and I started as a game designer there working on the Warrior Project. And uh, eventually, this team and it's most of my time working on that franchise. So I worked on both the first one, the second one. Okay. I was the lead for the second one. Right. And then would be the was gonna be the lead for the third one and then at that point I took off. Right. Okay. So I wanna know because I was I was looking at the series a lot last night, um, just to kind of give myself a refresher. And uh, do you know do you know how the idea for this series actually came about? Mercenaries? The the mercenary series, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um uh in 2000, I want to say the end of 2001, a small team at Pandemic was for working on <laughs> like a volleyball game or something. For okay, <laughs> it was nuts. There was like volleyball in, in ball above New York City. It just I, I you'd have to ask Cameron Brown about this one. But uh, <laughs> did that get shut down? You guys, you guys never got that out, right? So um, right around that time, I don't know how we came into contact with EA or what the deal was, but EA wanted us to game in their Strike series from the 90s. So, you know, Strike was like a helicopter action game. Okay. We decided that we would, um, we agreed with them to do another one of those games and Basically, we developed some technology that allow us to kind of do something like that. But key to that tech was the uh, functionality to be able to destroy any asset in the world for the most part. Mm. And so there was some tech around, you know, being able to sort of use your high-powered helicopter to be able to lay waste to things. Um, They were working on that for some time while I was working on Full Spectrum Warrior. Okay. EA came to... And said, "Hey, uh, this is cool, but quote is going to be a sign of the times. Uh, it was a uh, this is definitely not going to sell a million copies, which was kind of like as I kind of like a crushing blow to hear from them. Like, oh, we're working on this thing, and they're telling you it's not going to sell well at all. Oh, I mean, at, what, what they meant was like at that point, the EA metric for for selling well was like a million. Okay." days it'd be like 10 million um for, I mean, crushing blow i'm not 
not totally sure because I hadn't joined the team at this point. I just remember the order of operations. Right. Look, um, there's this game that's becoming very popular called Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> take this idea or take this technology or take some idea and put these together and start working on an open world action game. I was pretty excited to hear this because before joining Pandemic, I had worked for Black Isle Studios. Really? Okay. Um, you know, we made uh, nonlinear role-playing games, interesting worlds. And I really loved that kind of experience. I'd grown up with things like that. Like I grew up with the Ultima series and other big CRPGs and that sort of thing. But at that point, there really wasn't that kind of experience on a console. This is sort of lost on people now, but Grand Theft Auto really ushered in the capacity to be able to do big nonlinear things on console. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was wonderful. And agreed, and they decided to change the game from the helicopter action game into a third-person action um, action game. Okay. Went on for, I forget how many months, but let's say it's like six months or so. It was becoming um, like a uh, military action, open world action game. <laughs> uh, it was kind of in the spirit of the times. You know, I think it was set in, the, in Iraq or something. I could be wrong about that. The first mercenaries? Uh, yeah, before it was called Mercenaries. Oh, it was, okay. It was originally... Oh, wow. It was called Strike or something like... Or Desert Strike or something like that. Gotcha. And that was going on reasonably well. Developed uh, pretty good gameplay mechanics for that. And at that point, I had joined the team because um, I discovered that while a cool idea was not my kind of game, and uh, I, I was seeing the Mercenaries or the, the sort of pre-Mercenaries... what was happening there and I really liked the team a lot I joined that team I think early 2003 okay. you know we were setting out to make a very open world action game and the point was uh, I had kind of an eye opening experience which was What happened when you start working with a major publisher like EA um, from a third party, which is that you, um, you know, you have some level of control of what you're doing for the support of a big company and a lot of money, people to account to, and you may not get every decision that you want. So at some point, our conversations with EA basically went along the ways of, I think we need to go our own way because we feel like the, it's not going to be of benefit to our studio. So uh, we had originally uh, sort of negotiated a contract that would let us do that. Pandemic and EA agreed to split, split ways. Okay. When that happens, we were allowed to take the technology and the tools, but we couldn't take the assets. Oh. 
And our CEO and our CCO, that'd be uh, Josh and Andrew, came to us, the, the what would become the mercenaries team, and said, "Independent again with this project. What do you want to do?" This obviously was just such a a fun time because Sounds now good. we just have complete control of what we're doing, and. These brainstorming sessions really well because basically the composition of the creative team for mercenaries is you had who loved role-playing games. Uh, there were some of us who had made role-playing games at Black Isle. I think three people from Blizzard who'd kind of gone through the Warcraft, Starcraft era. Um, and they too loved. And our creative director, Cameron Brown, his favorite game was uh, Virtual Fighter. <laughs> I have a, a lot of love for role-playing games. So there's sort of a natural creative, I think, uh, tension or whatever you want to call it, but uh, it was a good kind of like balance between all things. So when we were talking about wanting to make something like, <laughs> he, he's like, I don't know what that is, you know. Mm. Um, but something that we did end up centering on quite a bit probably makes sense if you remember the game and you and then you draw the, the dotted line to mercenaries. Uh, we kind of got it interested in the idea of making a Jagged Alliance-like game. Okay. A lot of initial ideas started kind of coming from that. It's like, what if we had like a team of mercenaries, you know, that um, kind of had contracts that they could go deal with and... Um, um, something where they could basically make money at sort of taking individual contracts of the help and how they would approach those both in the sort of meta structure of it and also in the, uh, in the mechanic structure of it. Hmm. We came to that idea pretty fast, you know, trying to build uh, or sort of round out the sort of game mechanics and technology around uh, uh, building out a mercenary style game. So the, the, the idea for mercenaries from that period of time in like basically mid-ish 2013 and we, we settled on the, on North Korea as the first setting is that we were looking for some place to set it. And it came from me or someone else. And then I went to investigate it. All I remember at that time was that I opened up a, a, an issue of this this periodical called uh, Wallpaper, Architecture and Design. Um, uh, there was a photo photo log photo journey on North Korea, and I had never seen North Korea before, really, uh, and really hadn't seen any kind of like sort of deep dive into the country and. All this sort of Cold War architecture that I'd never seen before, and these crazy buildings and monuments, and and uh, I was kind of fascinated by this. Well, clearly, this is the place where we need to set this, you know, because there's all these interesting things to blow up. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, pretty soon after we had our technology, we had our setting. 2013, we had a proof of concept. We were um, one of the missions from from the ship game, sort of built, and 
Wait, you, you cut out a little bit. Sorry. Would, would you mind just repeating that? We, we had one of those. We had one of the missions sort of built, and I think we showed it to Lucas, and we were we were blown away that Lucas was interested because they just seemed like the Star Wars company. <laughs> right. They, they agreed, and we we hauled off on uh, starting to make Mercs uh, in earnest, and a lot of um, that sort of make the game up. You know, we were just kind of inventing on the fly. Um, mm-hmm. Is that things typical up. in game development, going on the fly, or were you guys just feeling it here? Um, not so much anymore. The reason being is because budgets are so huge now that um, you're responsible to kind of go, sort of wander around without knowing exactly where your North Star is at. Gotcha. How open world action games definitely used to be is that they a lot of kind of you know throw, basically experimenting and it would be incredibly messy until damn near the end, end of the project. Hmm. I would say that Mercenaries was a complete was was all that messy because we had a really good sort of um, mechanical and technical foundation around destruction and action. Right to kind of game some form. Um, took some time, and there was a couple of concepts that really next level. Um, one was, I think it was Cameron who came up with the GTA in a war zone. <laughs> That's such a good idea. <laughs> yeah, and and it's, it and everybody who will be everyone who's worked on a big team or in game development knows and can attest to. It's like that, like where all of a sudden you're able to sort of just some of things very simply. Mm-hmm. It, could, it could just galvanize the creative process. All of a sudden, like everyone knows, oh yeah, I got it. Now I know what this is. Like a really a good example of that too. <clears throat> Pitch statement for Resident, I'm oh, sorry, for uh, Dead Space was Resident Evil in Space. Oh. Everybody on the team knows exactly what the game is. And so as soon as we said GTA in a war zone, the team pretty much got it. Um, around that same time, maybe a little bit earlier, uh, I remember there was the concept of the deck of cards associated with high-value targets. And we just took that and ran with it as a game structure, and that became a pretty feature of Mercs is we had the deck of 52 and you were just going to go through the deck of cards in order to try and capture your low to high level value targets. Right. So that helped structure, you know, how we were going to organize the game, you know, in terms of the kind of the smaller encounters and the the, um, pri- the primary targets that were going to drive sort of like the, the sort of story structure to the game. Hmm. We came to the nonlinear counter flow pretty early of trying to sort of allow people to approach things however they wanted to. Being a really easy way to build the game. Uh, what, in the most structure, you basically had the capture or kill version of, of the encounter. And basically all you had to really do is build the capture version of the encounter. The player to sort of go through and have to sort of consider every aspect of how they pr- progress through an encounter puzzle. But if it was the kill them version, they just laid waste of the encounter. Mm-hmm. Right. So they kind of 
it was sort of the, the, their way of sort of upping the ante and how much money they wanted to get out of um, or how much completion they wanted to get out of the game. I, I don't know if the rest of the team feels this way, but I often refer to us as the kill switch of open world action games. <laughs> um, there's a lot of concepts that kind of trace back to Mercs and some of the some of the, ex, the sort of exploration we did. Like, I feel um, like you could see some of uh, Mercs in like the Saboteur, for example, one of your your later open world games before the studio oh, yeah. closed down. Like, you could definitely see it was a defining title for you guys for the future. Or more, I would say even more pervasively, the approach to an open-ended action encounter like we did mm-hmm. is, now, I think, what people refer to as the Far Cry encounter. And yeah. either that, that concept of taking outposts and coming over or and approaching them in however angle you want to was definitely, if we're not the first, we're one of them. Um, I don't know who's before us. Maybe Freedom Fighters, <laughs> which is... We took some inspiration from the concept of using um, airstrikes and deliveries as sort of spells in a in a modern shooter. Sure that those had some influence on kill streaks in Call of Duty. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, obviously, destroying everything in the world that was something that we pioneered. Um, so it was a game full of a lot of new um, ideas that. Having a really good sort of uh, some technology, some good technical people, some really good creative design. The, t- the design team that I worked with there was the best I've ever worked with. Wow. We really had a really, really great time making it. Some people feel like we crunched more than I think, but I don't re- – in the, in the continuum of crunch in my, in my career, I, I – that that bad <laughs> so yeah, yeah sorry. Uh, it was like a little cut out you, you i said i don't remember mission. it being all that bad okay i mean i'm saying that from my point of view we there may be some people who disagree with me but i don't think it was that what i what i find most interesting is because you, you mentioned like gta in a war zone you know destroying the entire world and and how that's sort of a part of pandemic's pedigree because you you think also of uh, destroy all humans that allowed a lot of world destruction. And what I find most interesting about Mercenaries is that um, it's such a fun game. You know, you had the disguise system, like everything mm-hmm. kind of pushed you to get money. It's a crazy open world that's destructible. You, you sort of had a choice of who you wanted to work for. Um, but it was all grounded in this what I'd consider like a, a plausible future at the time. You're like, wow, hold on. This, this is something that I could really buy into and and was that a part of the design as well like hey this is going to be a crazy fun game but uh what's going to really hook i I wouldn't say hook the player but what will kind of drag them in initially is that this is believable is that ever a name for your guys games or is it just straight fun well if you were sort of yeah i mean this was a topic of much debate um of course the uh, of the two two games really um at first, I'm not so sure we felt like it should be grounded. Um, our pillars for the game, a lot of games established as kind of like your sort of foundation philosophical statements for what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to have an open world. It's going to have sandbox gameplay. It's going to have um, the uh, 
uh, you know, destruction obviously was very important. And then, so uh, a zeitgeist at the time, which, you know, the PMC was something that was evolving in Afghanistan and Iraq and the sort of the concept of the, the gun for hire instead of the typical traditional military. So floating around in culture, it wasn't really until the second game that we really started to kind of who we were, um, you know, whether we were going to be grounded or, or more over the top or action oriented or whatever. And uh, for the second game, we realized we had to do that because it was clear that in order for the fantasy to have more resonance, we would have to build out more of the, the universe and the world, et cetera. Hmm. Um, at that time, we definitely started to try and sort of figure out, are we more realistic, quasi-realistic, or is it more, uh, as some people on the team, myself included, felt, are we, are we more like Metal Slug? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we never really reconciled that, honestly. It was really, it was really tough. Um, I'm not saying anything I don't say to uh, Cameron's face because he, he and I are incredibly good friends, but um, it was not his favorite thing in the world. He's a gameplay person. Right. And on the second one, we, the company almost made him become a story and world person, person, and I don't think he enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're human. We did a whole lot of work on trying to figure out that story for the second one, and final motivating the like call to action in that game is you get shot in the ass, which yeah. couldn't be around. So. Uh, <laughs> uh, so the, the, the second it, one, it's a, it, sorry, you gone. I wrestled with it throughout the entirety of the history of the franchise. And my takeaway from that, the thing I learned was for you to make a truly successful open world action game to really have it, you know, be something where people appreciate the nature of an open world. You have to have a fantasy that's multifaceted. I mean, really multifaceted. So, if, for example, if you go to talk to somebody and ask them um, about the Old West as a fantasy or being an outlaw, you know, they could just start naming off everything. Oh, you know, it's about, like, pain or playing blackjack or, you know, cattle wrestling or, you know, the Old West or any of the things that you see show up in Red Dead Redemption. Right. Whereas when you say that, ask people about mercenaries – they typically had two responses, which was like, as in the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, <laughs> or uh, Blackwater fantasy. You know, and and if you say, well, what is the, what does the the mercenary do? Not shooting people, there isn't a lot of detail there. There's not a lot of good answers, and that's part of the problem that we ran into is that our fantasy um, sort of. Uh, well-rounded enough to support a lot of different experiences. So hmm. that was gonna that was a big creative takeaway from Mercenaries, at least for me. Right, and and um, in the second one, uh, the, the world was truly like full-on destructible. You added in co-op, mm-hmm. headed to Venezuela, and, and this was the one that um, you took like a higher position at. Was there 
any takeaways from the first one that you applied to this one, or is a lot of this just takeaways after you know working on the series and letting it bake for a while and thinking about it as you you moved on to greener pastures, we'll call it. <laughs> um, honestly, on that project, my most of what I was was wrestling with is it was my first um, sort of leadership position, so on you know, uh, leading a project with double the design team and a lot of historical uh, experience there with what the game's supposed to be. And we went headfirst into a period of time like a lot of companies with new technology and tools and the PS3 at that time. And it was just uh, tough. So... I mean, we had had all kinds of different ideas about, you know, what the game was going to be and how we would incorporate destruction in a more meaningful way and how, um, you know, the metagame um, impacted everything that we were doing. There was a, there were, We had a bunch of ideas about how this would work. We ended up, for a variety of reasons, scoping all the way damn near back to, like, it's basically just mercenaries with co-op. Hmm. And that done was even, like, you know, uh, sort of a monumental task. So um, my takeaway, my takeaways from, from Mercs 2 were more organization of a game, or more about the business and the things that can go wrong and, um, you know, being more humble, you know, because <laughs> we went into that game, we went into all of our games 2005-ish era just on top of the world because Pandemic had been successful with Mercenaries and Battlefront and Straw Humans. Bioware, who were also enjoying a lot of success. And um, uh, came out of those next three years just kind of like this battered veteran. (laughs) (laughs) Tough, tough. What was it what was it like, if you don't mind me asking, I, guess, I don't want to say like you were on the decline, but um, I guess the, the golden age was winding down, so to speak. I don't think your products, and I, I know maybe I have a little bias, I don't think your products ever like wavered in quality, but there was, I guess, a wavering in uh, popularity amongst people. And did you, did you feel that in the studio a little bit? Um, I think I would color it differently. Okay. Uh, because basically what happened was, five like we just had a, a number of hits and then the next period that everybody hears from pandemic is kind of the second wave of our products and that's after we go through this incredibly difficult period of time i think the reason that pandemic ends up wavering is because our games just weren't as good on basically post um, elevation buyouts and they weren't as good not because of the quality of the company or the creative it was because we took on too much um, we were encouraged there's the company you were encouraged uh, to what sorry sorry we were we were encouraged by our our investors to grow the company just as Bioware was in, encouraged to grow their company successful at you know, being able to manage three three projects at a time, turn that into five projects, 
and all five of them are open world action games, each one of them is going to require like triple the team size that you were used to. You know, the, the managing of effort of that is just, you know, was beyond everybody. Just, just the, just the managing part of us, that scope. And that doesn't even get into the PS3 era in which Sony drops like, you know, a brand new sort of hardware architecture on everyone and they have to sort of scratch their heads to figure out how it works. Mm. And, um, a lot of companies, ourselves included, decided we were going to go tackle the prospect of central technology. So we we said, hey, you know, we've been using a lot of the pandemic games have been built on the Interstate 76 engine for a long time. We decided we were going to do brand new tech and tools and it was going to be wonderful and awesome. And uh, into that, it was just a, it was just a mess. Like we just took on too much and our tools and our tech weren't working and really an end in sight and even making a game like mercenaries where conceptually it was very similar to what we'd done before was hard hmm. trying to do new things, you know, like they were, they were trying not even conceptually were different. So just, um, we just, the, I think that the problem got beyond us because we grew too fast and Bioware's great, foresight or luck or whatever it was is they decided not to do as many projects. Right. It's the company better on just making things like mass effect and the old Republic. So, uh, um, better, uh, in a better position than us to be able to handle all the challenges that, that came in front of us. Hmm. It's, it's, it's kind of, you know, we we, um, we definitely did it to ourselves, and it was uh, it was kind of heartbreaking. So, are you, are you? Would you consider yourself happier now, after, like after your time with pandemic, or or do you really just you know miss those days? If you don't want this, I mean, by I'm, the way, on the record, I'm, I'm more so just asking in general. But I don't know. I I, I really miss pandemic. Lots of people do. Um, don't we all? We had a great time there. We had a great time there. The company was great. I mean, the company had issues like every other company, but I mean, all up in general, it was a great place. We had great leadership. I think I'm pretty certain if you talk to anybody from pandemic, they will have nothing but good things to say about Josh and Andrew and Greg who ran the company. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's one thing I've noticed is pretty much anyone I've, I've reached out to has been really like positive and, and helpful and like seems to miss those days and, Strangely enough, uh, it feels like everyone I've also contacted has like held on to stuff that was canceled or never before seen, like gameplay or concept art or trailers or whatever. It just seems to be a theme where, um, at this point, like I told you, I've reached out to three people and all three people are like, yeah, including you, like I've got tons of stuff that just no one's seen before. And I don't know if that's part of just Mm -hmm. like, you know, uh, a game developer's work is like, I, I just create content. I don't develop games, but I don't know if that's just a thing they do Just save everything. Or if it's like, a, you know, I want to go back and look at this one day or something kind of thing. Like it just, it's kind of strange that everyone from pandemic has, has shared that quality from my point of view. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, sometimes they don't have that stuff because typically companies don't want you to be uh, taking it. <laughs> uh, pandemic office is defunct. So, um, it's a little bit different, but right. 
Um, I, I think, um, I think in general, people had a pretty uh, positive experience there and it was a fun company to work for. And I think we did a lot of things there. So, you know, I definitely took a lot of the lessons from pandemic. You know, um, I was definitely proud that I was able to pandemic at um, 343. A great, to me, a great legacy of 343 is how much of that four is due to people from pandemic yeah it was a good game i enjoyed it a lot yeah yeah i'm mean, a lot of like the you know our lead gameplay engineer was frederick pearson who made two engines for pandemic um i was there obviously uh, brad welsh was there who was creative director at um at pandemic and worked with me on, on mercenaries games uh, tom french who was the uh, sort of the lead designer for Saboteur was with me on Halo 4 as well, as with along with Brad and on, uh, was from Pandemic, Evo, just a, just a bunch of people, uh, Adam Pino. That's crazy. I didn't know that. The success of 343 basically was early on, key uh, people who started, uh, Kenneth Scott, David Berger, and myself, um, and the reason I say key is because we were key in people that we had we had worked with. So Kenneth was able to bring a lot of people from from ID, hmm. bring a lot of people from FASA, and I brought a bunch of people from Pandemic. And pretty between the three of us, we quickly had probably forty fifty who had all shipped high quality action games before. So. Um, big help but the, the thing that made me happy was because because we were to bring so many people from pandemic was able to we were able to like make it so those people who had put all of their effort and time into the, the final pandemic products and maybe not have them turn out as well as they could they could then have a great experience of of making halo and then quality and having it you know feel like okay now all this hard work has meant something i have this thing i'm truly proud of Millions of people have bought this, and a lot of it's at least influenced by um, our even technical philosophies that we earned and honed at Pandemic. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's awesome. It's sort of a almost a coming of age tale. It was as if it was scripted, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so that that's kind of like the the list of questions I I generally have right now. Um, I guess now if, if there's more you had to say in general um but you know if if time's limited we could just sort of move on to some of the the never before seen stuff that you said you had um it's up to you either way you want to go oh let's well so let's do let's uh maybe a few more questions and then the the stuff i have to show you i have to we have to postpone by a few days because my computer died oh no okay so i have it all backed up it's just i have to I have to basically I have to replace the power supply on my, uh, my computer. All right. That's- yeah, um, that's, but, no, that's, that's no problem with me. Yeah, then do you uh, when just 
for uh, the sake of knowing when we do that again, would we have to hop in a call or would you just email it to me? Is that how it would work? Or... I'll email you some assets. Okay. All right, cool. Um, anyway. All right. Well, I'm going to ask a few more questions. Um, I guess uh, you, you talked a lot about mercenaries. Have you, have you worked during your time at pandemic? Did you put your hands on any other franchises or was it just Mercs? I started on full spectrum warrior mm-hmm. with uh, the creative director there. It was the beginning of my time there for the first year and a half um, was mostly on that project. And um, interesting and surreal coming from making role-playing games. Like I'd worked on Planescape and Icewind Dale, and all of a sudden I'm making like a military. It was odd. Um, worked on that, and then I spent a lot of time on mercenaries. And maybe in which we weren't doing mercs, was uh, towards the end of development of Mercs 1. The game wasn't going to do well because we hadn't seen it in press and Lucas wasn't really doing a lot of thing about the, the game at that time. Right. And so we were just preparing for a future in which we're not going to... We actually kicked Saboteur off. Like, we were originally going to make Saboteur as the Mercenaries team. Oh, wow. So that Saboteur was, like, in, like, concepted for years, pretty much, the general idea, I'm guessing. Uh, started in late uh, 2004. Wow. <laughs> when did that game come out again? Like, was it 2009. 2009. Wow. Yeah, it's a long time. Wow. And initially, uh, a few of us, I know myself for certain, down on the idea because, you know, it was originally pitched to us as, like, a sort of a clandestine World War II thing. And at that time, I was just kind of World War II'd out from Call of Duty and some of the games at the time. Mm -hmm. Then uh, they started sharing the concept of the sort of race car driver becomes secret agent. And we started seeing concepts of of sort of like the black and white treatment of the city, sort of colored, this sort of brightly colored Bugatti cigar cars. And I was just like, oh man, this looks awesome. And, we started getting pretty excited about the idea of making sort of an action role-playing game set in uh, the French resistance. Yeah. I mean, I can still say to this day, there's absolutely nothing like the saboteur. There's just not like artistically speaking world space wise. It's just, it's incredibly unique. Yeah. So we, we started making that and um, then Mercs blew up um, for the first month of 2005. Uh, we were the number one game. Actually, built we beat the release of Resident Evil Four because Resident Evil Four had the misfortune of being just on the GameCube. <laughs> <laughs> so that was kind of an achievement, and so that changed our fortunes considerably. To uh, sort of with uh, a couple of people, most notably Tom French on Saboteur in earnest and middle of 2005 they put together gameplay proof of concept demos I've ever seen it didn't it didn't ship in the game because it was a little bit too ambitious but it was just Indiana Jones like uh, sort of um, hijacking a vehicle you know fighting on the size of vehicle and doing it in real time 
And uh, it was just, it was everybody, we, at that, that was like the highlight of pandemic was just this demo was just the potential for the, the game at that point just kind of blew up. So have to make Mercs too. We're almost kind of sad to see Saboteur go to another team <laughs> because uh, it just seemed like such a great idea. And it, you know, it took a long time for that sort of to congeal into something else. So an example of, of things that I was involved with for a little bit. And then around that time, we were also pitching to publishers, different ideas. And I seem to remember ring stuff <laughs> and, uh, I'm pretty sure I pitched a role-playing game like set in the first age, <laughs> somewhere early in or whatever. Um, quickly into Mercs Two at that point, so right. And then, and then most of our time post Mercs Two was just Mercs Three. How do we improve, and how do we go into this new, brave new world of in 2009, and uh, um trying to make a more of an action or a multiplayer version of that game. Just a lot of different stuff. Right. But that was, that, that was pretty much it as far as my involvement with things at the pandemic. Um, and actually, you know, this, this is just a general game developer question. Would you just, dis- how would you describe, I guess, what you do, right? You're, you're a designer or a lead designer. Um, what does that job entail really? Well, these days I'm a, I'm a game director. Okay. Um, and the simplest way to put it is that we typically work with a creative director who owns the overall high-level vision of the game, the world, the narrative, the universe, the kind of product we're going to make, parameters in which we work within. And the game director usually works with the team to translate that into the actual game itself. And so what are the systems going to be? What are the levels? Philosophically, um, you know, sort of setting the box tighter and making the thing. Hmm. Um, To have these kind of positions, you know, uh, it used to be like, for example, 20 years ago, you probably just needed a lead designer, vision for the product. Like when I worked on Planescape, Alone is listed as lead designer. So, and he absolutely has the vision. He's sort of the creative director and the lead designer on that one. Teams have gotten bigger. You have more of a, a need for some organizational hierarchy and overview. So, uh, you know, we've started having positions like creative directors and game directors and so forth. Okay. My expertise comes from design. I uh, started as I guess quest designing and scripting at Black Isle is primarily what I did. Got concerned if I kept sort of being that kind of designer would be a little bit limiting because at that time there was a real 2001 around there. There was a real sort of existential crisis within American game developers that lots of us weren't working on console action games and it seemed like the PC was going to die. (laughs) <laughs> and mm. everything was going to be the consoles. It's like, oh, my God. <laughs> so I, I quickly tried to find an action place to work out, which is why I ended up at Pandemic. Oh, wow. And since then, you know, a lot of it's been, a lot of my experience has been building level, uh, like, encounters and scripting and our um, interest in, in, in designing uh, enemies and artificial intelligence. 
probably the, the thing I was most preoccupied with on Halo 4 was coming up with a brand new uh, the player to fight. And so a lot of my sort of deep dive into things is, has been on how do we construct hunters that um, sort of fit, um, uh, well, I should say encounters that are sort of a sandbox in nature, allow for emergence, allow players to, to do them in different ways and and have the AI respond in kind to that to make sure that the AI is sort of like a cruise director of fun. Right. Um, sort of, you know, gives you an experience that lets you feel like your creativity is meaningful. Did you have your hands on the multiplayer aspect at all, or is that like a separate design process of its own? Halo 4? Yeah. Um, so the way that Halo games were organized up to that point, and our game wasn't, ex- wasn't an exception, these sort of different groups to make up the game. You have like a, a gameplay team and you have a multiplayer team and a campaign team. And you might have a, then at a lower level, like weapons and vehicles and such. Halo historically had balanced the game was to build a fun multiplayer experience. Game features um, sort of support a fun multiplayer experience first and then you take those pieces and you campaign out of them as well Hmm. Um, but it's not sort of like handoff as it sounds there usually these things are designed in tandem so the campaign team for example knows the gameplay features are going to be as we go along and how those are going to interact with campaign levels and AI etc um My, I mean, I oversaw all of the Halo 4 design, but, you know, moment to moment, I was probably 70% of the campaign and 30% of the multiplayer at that time because I there with Halo AI. <laughs> so I, I wanted to um, deep dive into that. I ended up in the last year or so, I, I spent about half of my time building probably about 20 minutes of the, the campaign basically just counters and making sure that um, were fun. And I had learned how the sausage got made there. So that was really good fun. Brad Welsh, uh, who worked with me and I'd hired at 343 and had worked with uh, mercenaries in that pandemic ended up being the multiplayer lead for, for that game. 100% pandemic on the design direction there. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and now you're at Ubisoft. So, what, what kind of uh, kind of games are you work have you worked on there? Uh, nothing we've announced yet. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> stuff at the San Francisco studio, um, but uh, should be interesting. It's been been real fun. I love the studio, San Francisco, and Ubisoft is just a, a game company. I really really love their approach to things. I thought, I mean, I figured I would because has been open world action games and that's clearly something I did for a long time. Right. Turns out like that uh, we see things very eye to eye. So I'm uh... No, it's awesome. They they always you know, as I interact with them as a creator when they like reach out to me about like event opportunities and whatnot, you know, mm-hmm. they 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 always struck me as a company that sort of understood at least where 
my positioning was. So it's good to know also internally that, that you guys have that same understanding, that same eye-to-eye -eye point of view. And, you know, while Ubisoft is one of the biggest companies in gaming right now, I admire their ability to experiment doing like a Mario and Rabbids doing... Uh, what else did they do? You know, obviously Watch Dogs Legions looks really different from, from anything we've seen, really. And, and you see what happened with Rainbow Six Siege and how that's blown up. And it's because they're constantly trying new stuff. So, yeah, I, I think they go as one of the more underappreciated big game developers. Like, obviously they have their fans. Um, there's plenty of them, but a lot of people quickly, like, thrash them for something. And I, I think they're they're very, they're excellent. They're consistent. Um, and it's good to know that internally they, they treat you guys well. Yeah, I think that's what happens when you have a company that's largely run by the same people who founded it and they have a, a strong love of their medium. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think it shows in the attention to uh, how the, what the work is like from the company. Yeah. Um, that's all my questions though, man. I'm out. Okay. I'm out of these questions. <laughs> Great. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you gave me way more time than I expected and you were incredibly thorough. I, I really appreciate this. This has been, this has been awesome. Last but certainly not least is Tom French, who focused on the Saboteur. This was toward the end of the studio's life cycle, where they would eventually close down. So we're getting an idea of what the morale was like in the studio, where they knew it was coming. How was that all for the team? So here we go. Once again, Tom French. You're a lead designer on the Saboteur. Um, yep. and, and this was sort of the, the swan song game for pandemic right like this was the one you guys went out on and it was a high note really which was which was interesting um and, and the the main mechanic of that game that always stuck out to me was the, the black and white leading to color um and i remember when i talked to scott warner he had said that th this game had been originally it was going to be handled by the mercenaries team and i believe you were around uh pandemic at that time because i think that was like 2004 2005 and so um, I just wanted to know from like the beginning of this project, was the, the plan to use that color as a, as a tool in the game? Yeah. So where that came from was we finished Mercenaries. Uh, we were having problems with LucasArts and trying to figure out like what we were going to do next. And so uh, we were, they were working on some pitches for some other games. And then uh, the concept for this game came up from one of the studio heads. And I got the, I built the prototype for it in the Mercenaries engine originally. And we wanted this idea of the, 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 the will to fight kind of in there being captured. And we, we were doing it very differently at first. It wasn't as kind of binary as it is it ended up being where it was just kind of black and white or color. There was like a gradient curve to it. Hmm. And so we started to prototype that in the engine that we had. And then it was like partway through. And it wasn't really as polar as it became where the, with the black and white. It was just originally it was about just kind of desaturating the world and making the world feel kind of sad. And then. I'm I'm a big I was a big comic book nerd and so it was uh, like Sin City became especially when the movie came out it became uh, like oh what if we did that because that feels really drastic <laughs> and you can feel the the kind of tension and it's palpable and so once we actually spun the team up um, and I got on that the saboteur team that was like a big focus right from the very beginning was figuring that out and we kept the kind of gradient nature for I think probably the first year of the project and then we decided to actually make it more binary. Uh, which was, I think it was exciting to see the stark contrast right next to each other made them feel drastically different when you walked in and out of one. Yeah, it, it's funny how the, the color in the game works because it, almost when I, I finished a location or rather a section of the world and, and you know it would add color to it, 
I always found myself wanting to go to the next area that was black and white, which is which is very different from games nowadays. Right nowadays, everyone's trying to pop a ton of color into their game, um, lots of like you know uh, gradients and and lens flare and like all these drastic effects. And it's amazing how um, this game kind of created its own style just by removing color in a sense and, and kind of symbolizing the narrative with that. Um, which which would bring me actually to another question, which is um, when creating the story, was it always this? you know, uh, Irish racer guy who's like uh, unexpectedly sparking a rebellion. Was that always the, the goal in mind for the story for the saboteur? I mean, the, the spark is off of a real person. Like there was a real driver named William Grover Williams that we uh, kind of looked at inspiration for. He was English. And so that was kind of where we started. And then we, we, I mean, I know there were Irish, there was obviously that Irish involved in the war, but we liked the diet, the idea that there it was a nation that wasn't necessarily directly involved with the war. And so we kind of just kept looking around, trying to figure out what we wanted. And then, yeah, we always wanted to keep the race car driver. We wanted to keep the French resistance kind of like, um, like inspiration kind of vibe or tone to the game. And that's where we kind of started building from there and just figuring out our own world uh, on top of that. Right. So it was always going to be a World War II style game, freeing from the Nazis, all that type of stuff. Yes, that was kind of the core foundation of everything. And a lot of it was to... Like the story was, the idea was really fascinating to dig into. And then at that time, there was a lot of uh, kind of World War II fatigue in the marketplace. Yeah, I was going to mention and, that next. Yeah, and so that was kind of part of like, how do we do, I mean, there's still a lot of interesting and vibrant stories in that universe. I mean, even now games are starting to kind of go back there. Um, and so we wanted to explore it, but in a different way that would kind of differentiate ourselves from the traditional, you know, just, you know, pushing through and shooting on the front lines. Yeah, and I, I mean, obviously, I think you know by this point in time, but if you don't, you know, I think you guys succeeded. I, I think that game <laughs> is, is truly unique. There's really nothing like it, which is why it stands out amongst so many other World War II titles. Um, but as, as I said, this was a, a bit of a swan song game, and so I wonder, as you guys were making this game, did you get that inkling as you were going on, like this, I want I don't want to sound too drastic, too dramatic, but like, was it a, oh, this might be it, like this might be the last one? Was there that inkling? Because as I interviewed other people from pandemic it seemed like it, everything happened fast so yeah um i didn't know if you if, did you have that suspicion or were you just kind of boots on the ground working away didn't have to worry about that stuff yeah i mean i i don't think at the low level we really understood and we were we were a, ta a team that just really loved working with each other and we spent you know we we were there every night and like the way i would describe it is i was working with some of my best friends like every night and we, we were there till two to four o'clock in the morning, depending on what we wanted to get done. And um, so we didn't really think about that. We were just kind of in love with making a game with each other. And we kind of just kept that kept motivating us. Um, but it wasn't really until, yeah, I was like, I was literally, I had literally come back from a press trip and, uh, and I was sick from just being exhausted from traveling all over. Right. And my boss, contacted and he's like uh you need to get in and fill out your expense report like immediately and i was like what and um so i rushed in and he's like yeah there's some stuff going on and we there had been some murmurs and suspicions but like i don't know i was just kind of try to keep our team on the positive and be like let's just you know finish this thing and be proud of what we want to we're building and uh so that's kind of what just kept motivating us and then it really yeah it kind of swept the legs out under us and like we had already started prototyping a sab 2 and stuff like that uh, oh, yeah. kind of behind the scenes like skunk works a little bit mm -hmm. um but yeah and so it was kind of and it was kind of disheartening and, and it got stopped working with a lot of people i really miss and love on a day-to-day -day basis but uh you know it happens 
And when it came to the Saboteur 2, what was like, uh, was there a general framework for the story or the universe? Was it going to be more of uh, Sean or was it going to be a completely separate part of the world uh, with the same, I guess, gameplay systems? Yeah, we wanted to build off of it. I mean, I think there's a, I mean, I think some of the criticism of the game that came out when it came out at the time is pretty fair. And I think there's parts where I think the world didn't understand the difference between a quarter or first person shooter and what it takes to build an open world game and like graphic fidelity and things like that. Right. Um, and so we were really trying to, we wanted to kind of tighten up a bunch of the mechanics. There was a bunch of things that we, we felt we didn't even nail as well as we wanted to. We wanted to fix a bunch of that. Uh, we had, we hadn't really completely settled on the story, but we had kind of plots towards Sean moving into Berlin um, and actually, we, that's what we'd actually, one of our artists, or a couple of our artists kind of skunk works prototype Berlin, and then some really cool, like crazy contraptions, because, you know, we're kind of like a, a little bit of a fake history, right? right. Um, or actually quite a lot of it, if you really break it down, but <laughs> um, like, and they had some really cool ideas in there, and just like seeing Berlin realized in our engine, and was really cool and different looking, and, and so it was kind of neat. We wanted to move around more. Um, and kind of push into the enemy, like the the, the hive, per so to speak. Oh wow! Okay, that's awesome. And, and I'm imagining the the whole color no color thing would, would be uh, a carryover as well. Was that going to be sort of a staple in the series going forth? If you guys had For a second sure. one, yeah, we were we were really proud of that mechanic. We knew immediately that you looked at our game and you're like, oh, I know what game that is. That was kind of a, a mantra that we had when we developed it. Like you could look at a screenshot and immediately understand what you were looking at, what game it was. And uh, so we wanted to carry that forward. You know, we weren't sure how that was going to how Berlin would be impacted by that. But there was a lot to figure out there. But uh, the the difference in architecture kind of immediately, it looked cool. Like, I'll just tell you that much. I, I'm kind of bummed we never got to actually actualize it. Yeah, I mean, hey, so am I because I, I love the first one. So <laughs> more of that would have been great. Um, yeah, and I, I noticed earlier you said it was like you were working until two four in the morning on um, these games with, with close friends. And that seems to be a theme with pandemic is I, I always heard how anyone I talked to wasn't just giving me, cause you know, this is just stuff I can edit out or whatever. I, I was always told consistently though, that people just loved working here. Like it was, it was, it was a great place to work. And is there any place comparable to your time at pandemic really? Or was that just a real special time? Cause that's often what I hear is that 2005 to 09, era was was just like a, a really good time to be at pandemic because it felt like there's a lot of creative freedom everyone who worked together seemed to like each other and i want to act like it was this stress-free environment everyone got along <laughs> you know there was no arguing it's game development but um it, it seems like uh there's there's a lot of fond memories there so w- would you say that's fair to say in, in your case and um is there any comparables or is it just like i said that kind of golden time for you yeah, I mean, it's interesting, like the industry's changed a lot, like especially after obviously like a lot of uh, like the big crunching stories come out and how uh, the next generation of game developers has come in. Like I noticed that I work on Halo now and um, the the there's times where you're you're all kind of in the trenches and you're there till two, three o'clock in the morning. And uh, but it's kind of not quite the same as pandemic where it felt like everybody partly because I felt like we, we felt like we had a bigger ship to pull um, that then our studio could kind of do on its own and so you had to kind of you felt like you needed to be there just to put make anything move forward right to just get as far as you could um and like i know when i i worked with scott back in black isle back in the day and like that was another studio that i had that same kind of feeling but we were all just a bunch of young knucklehead game developers and like at that time it was like that was all i knew it for me it was like 
I, it, well, I wanted it to be my art in a way. And so I was just going to put anything into it that I could. And pandemic kind of became like, for me, like a second part of that. It was it just kept that journey going. And yeah, I just made new friends. And like, I know we built a, I built, a, I had a really cool little design team and we were really close and I'm still really close to those guys. And uh, one of them moved up here and worked on Halo with me for a while. And then um, another one has his own studio now. Um, and so you have the, you just form these relationships and you, I, I think the, especially the, like the little core of us that were stayed there all the time, like we would have done anything for each other. And I think we still would. I mean, actually I, I'm positive. We still would like last time we got together, we kind of talked about how, like, I, I think all of us would take a bullet for each other. We care about each other. So wow. uh, it's really special times. And like, I don't know. I mean, I've had those moments on halo. Like um, I think the last couple games I've, I've had that. And I think the team I have now, or I think we're going to have those moments in the trenches, but like, yeah, uh, it is kind of a little bit of like, it's a little different when you're a smaller studio trying to kind of prove yourself. And gotcha. I think pandemic went from a, a double a developer that, that launched a triple a game. And then kind of that, like, can we keep doing this? And I think that was our expectations and we wanted to knock it out of the park all the time. Right. Um, yeah. And so I, staying on with the whole you know, working long hours thing. I'm not, by the way, searching for like a crunch story. So don't get me wrong here. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm not like that. Cause I, I get it in the sense. I know these are two totally different occupations, but like when I'm working on videos, right? Like sometimes I get caught up in it. Oh, it's 1am. Okay. I guess time to yeah. go home. You know, it's like you, you get so wrapped up in your work. You love it so much. Uh, would you kind of define that that's how the work was? I'm not saying it's separate from 343 where I'm sure it could be the same thing, but at pandemic where you just, you kind of got lost in your work and you guys just wanted to push till 2am to, to get something done. Um, there obviously you explained your motivation and, and, and desire to kind of, I guess, punch above your weight, but was it sort of a getting lost in your work sort of a love for it? Or was it more of like a, we have to do this too? Yeah. I mean, I mean, there was definitely, you know, I mean, to kind of your point earlier, like it wasn't always uh, a love affair. I think there was groups of us that loved each other and there was like, you know, friction here and there. Mm-hmm. And a lot of us were just like, we're, we just wanted to keep proving it. Like this was ours. Kind of you mentioned earlier, like there was a lot of, we felt like it was ours to burden to bear. And if we wanted to make a great game, we had to make a great game and we had to, we had to do it ourselves as much as we could. And so right. a lot of that was just, you know, just hanging out late at night, trying to get you know, get the gunplay to feel better, get the, um, get this mission dialed in a little bit better. Cause it was like, when we showed up, it was like, that was a Pete that reflected us. And, uh, we wanted to kind of always show up and show, um, what was our personality and that, like, what was this thing that we were, we were going to be proud of in the end of the day? Yeah. I mean, I, I think you guys should be immensely proud if, if you weren't already. Um, you know, when it comes to making this game, um, you know, I, I try to open up the opportunity for anyone I've had invited on to speak on my project to say, like, hey, is there any untold stories that maybe, you know, now's a good time to take the lid off of it, whether it's a game development story or just like a funny a funny tale, so to speak. Um, anything about the saboteur that maybe got cut um, that people may find interesting now. Is there anything like that that maybe you, you were aware of that you'd like to share now? Um, it's hard to remember all the details right, from back yeah, in the day. It's, it's like, so we're definitely ago. kind of far off of that. Um, I think, um, I mean, I don't know. There was just a bunch of, there was always just kind of dumb little things going in and people laughing about them and be like, Oh wait, we can't ship that. Or, um, I know that there's sometimes like we had an elevator. Uh, there's the scene where you're in the building, uh, that's on fire and you're fighting your way through and trying to get out of the bear. We had a boss fight originally in there, uh, with Dierker's girlfriend that I had to cut out of there. Um, and then, but we had this funny little scene in there where, 
because uh, everybody's kind of going to die inside of that building, basically. Um, when there's the two buttons on the elevators that you could go up, and one of them it leads in, it, it collapses. And originally there was like, um, there were two Nazis kind of like looking at, like longingly looking at each other, and then they kissed, and then the the, the, floor, the ceiling collapsed on them. It was kind of just to poke fun of like the the kind of oppression, and then the kind of like hiding their feelings for each other. It was just little right. stupid things like that that constantly made us laugh or uh, just smile, and then sometimes we'd get in trouble for them, but it didn't really matter to us because uh, we would just move on. But uh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It's hard to say. There's a lot of just I don't know. Again, it's just kind of knuckleheads at a studio having fun and building a game together, and that's kind of that's kind of the charm and like kind of I I love hearing your excitement for the game because it's like what I've realized is whereas we kind of got beat up at the time um, when we came out, I think in hindsight, people look at the game and see like the, all the free play stuff we had where you're blowing up the world and kind of changing how you impact missions. And I can see how that's influenced games of today, which is very cool. Absolutely. And then ultimately I think like what I'm most proud of and, is this kind of feeling that we made a very cool cult game that people still get really geeky about and will kind of, when they realize I worked on it, they'll talk to like me, like to no end about it. <laughs> and you kind of, I've kind of forget, I kind of forget how kind of a cool little thing that we made. Uh, even though it wasn't necessarily a big commercial success, our studio got shut down. Um, and it's not like a game that is going to go into the pantheon of the greats, but like it's a cult game that people worship and fell in love with. And that, is the thing I will take away and love the most. Yeah, I think you should, just because personally as someone who, you know, once again, totally different occupations, but when I make a video, sometimes it's not just like, how many views did I get? It's like, you know, what's the reception? How many people want to share this? How many people think it's cool? Like, how genuine is that reaction? And and oftentimes that means more because it's like, yeah, you know, I made something meaningful. Like this project I'm working on, I, I doubt it'll do something insanely well. But, you know, at the end of the day, I, I hope I make something that, you know, I can look back on. I can kind of catalog and say, you know, I, I made this documentary about arguably one of my favorite developers of all time and all the cool titles they made. And I got to talk to people who helped made that make that possible. So, yeah, I, I think personally um, you got the, the right path of thinking there. Um, when it came to the, the shutting down of the studio, I know you talked about how you had just come back from uh, a press trip and uh, you were exhausted um, what was the, I guess, um, once again, I don't like to use these dramatic words, but, you know, just to paint a picture of the kind of aftermath of it, uh, just because, I, like I said, I know it happened quickly, and you guys were sort of working on the last game before it it, uh, it all shut down. So was there anything additional you'd like to toss in there about the closing down of the studio, and more so your perspective on um, why it shut down because I had been told like, and this is just perspective, mind you, but I had been told like, Oh, it's, we, we took on too much at once or, um, we tried to do a little too much or we tried to spread ourselves too thin. We expanded too fast. Like how do you view the, the collapse of pandemic? Um, so yeah, I mean, I look back and I think you know, we were pretty much heads down in the trenches on SAB and we were putting everything we could into that game. And, um, you know, when it shut down, there was, uh, around the team, it was a cool moment of uh, of pride in that we had just finished this thing that we loved. And like one of our lead environment artists who uh, went off to work at Sony, he had a shirt that was like proud of Sab that he made the night before. Wow. And he was rocking that. And I was like, oh, man, that's awesome. Like you could feel his his pride. And we all we went out drinking that night. Right. And we were just very proud of, of what we did. And we had a, we ended up having a little post launch party because normally you have a launch party after your game. But the studio shut down at the same time. 
so we had one kind of uh, for saboteur off to the side and it was just it had been a couple weeks and we kind of came back together and you could feel like the kind of I miss I miss being by these people every day um, and then after that what was cool was the studio got gobbled up by every other studio very quickly. Like every, you could, there was an immense amount of talent at that studio. Like what happened when we came up here to Seattle, there was, there were 20 pandemic people, uh, pretty much here by the end of the first year, because, you know, Mike, like basically there was a couple people that started at Microsoft and they were like, they handpicked all the best people they could find and dragged them up here. And some stayed to do their own projects. Some didn't want to leave LA um, but you could see like the the meat of the studio and the quality of the studio going off into these other games, and then you can see the impact that it had on those games. Like we actually used to call three four three at one point Pandemic North because we had like twenty developers from that game, uh, from Pandemic there, um, a lot of the Swedes and stuff like that. So I think we made an impact after that. Um, and to your point of why the studio collapsed, I think kind of to your statement, it was kind of all the above. Like we bit off more than we could chew. We were punching above our weight already. Um, we we were we were trying to at one point share more tech, but like the needs for Saboteur was different than the needs of Mercenaries. And so that forced us to separate our tech. Um, we took on projects that needed to be quick, like the Lord of the Rings game. Um, that team was really tired. Like they, after they finished the first two battlefront games, like they, they knew that they were going to get a bunch of money thrown at them to make another game, but they were so tired um, because they just literally crunched those two games out. Um, it just wasn't feasible. And so it was a lot of things like that. And I think the, you know, we, I think had we maybe started smaller and punched more triple a with us instead of trying to spread ourselves out as much as we did, I think maybe we would have been able to carry our weight a little bit better, but it was, I think trying to figure out how to work in this next world of, uh, I think the 360 actually, or the 360 PS3 era kind of actually killed a lot of double a developers. I mean, we were kind of like a double a plus, we were kind of on that, that verge and that edge. Um, and I think it, it, because of like graphic fidelity, you know, starting to require more people to build a game and like, more technology and like the animation expectations and the fidelity of the increase between the two generations was drastic. And, uh, and I, yeah, just trying to figure out how to work under the weight of that and try to understand how big your team needs to be and how much you got a scope to, to manage that was, was hard and trying to be scrappy. And you work faster when you're on a small team, when you're on a big team, it's really hard to move things. And, I remember on Sab feeling like, holy crap, we have over 100 people on this game. This is the biggest team I've ever worked on. And then, you know, now I work on games where it's four or 500 people at a time. And right. uh, it's just a different weight. And, like, moving into that is not easy. Like, we, we wanted to be Pixar, but we weren't ready to be Pixar. So gotcha. uh, it was interesting. How comparable is game development um, around that time to now? And the reason I ask that is because you mentioned AA developers, how they did fizzle out around that generation, which absolutely happened. But now we're starting to see a little bit of a bounce back. You see uh, a team like Spiders, who just made Greedfall. You see a team like um, Piranha Bytes making Elix. Um, yeah. Don't Nod making Vampire. You're seeing these these AA developers uh, kind of trying to push the, the boundary, sort of like what Pandemic did. You see like little DNA from that. Um, and so with them returning, I, I want to know from your point of view, is there a, a difference in, in development now compared to what you went through with the Saboteur? For sure. There's like, so you know, when I first started, it was kind of like, 
uh, it, it had just moved out of the garages, I would say. Like in the mid to late 90s, like it had just come out of the garage and it was a bunch of, you know, again, a bunch of people didn't really know how to make a game. You just kind of stumbled through it more or less. Right. And then uh, in the 2000s. It was science, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I mean, yeah, it was just kind of like, oh, I got a dumb idea. I'm going to go do that thing. <laughs> and, the, and we did a lot of that. Like at Black Isle, I think half of like Fallout 2 is just like, oh, I had a stupid idea in the middle of the night. I'm going to go make this thing happen. Um, and that was, and that was the charm of it. And, and so moving into that double A, triple A era, um, and yeah, it, it did. I think especially around that era when pandemic shut down, it was kind of like the whole world had become like video game market had become about massive blockbusters. Like that's all the, the publishers were chasing. And I think what I've noticed happen kind of post that is a whole, like basically then the, the, a, the, 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 the capital A end of the indie game market happened and you get this world where these little indie game developers are punching way above their weight and they're they're making these really cool innovative indie titles that kind of excited the market in a new way and then from there i think that's what kind of led to that kind of that double a market that you're talking about where it has started and you're starting to see new ideas pop up in those things i really that's the if any area i love to play of games is that that like that big indie uh, kind of like double A kind of area because you're going to find people that are taking risks and chances whereas a lot of right. the bigger level games, right? They're having, they're having to serve bigger markets and things like that. And so they're often safer and, you know, sometimes they'll break new ground and stuff and that's awesome. And I mean, we try to do that every day, but uh, it, it definitely, it, it took a minute. It, it, you know, it literally kind of got put to pasture for, uh, for probably eight years, I felt, or five years maybe that the, uh, the double A market really kind of just, you know, took it to the back of the head. Um, and now we're see, starting to see it kind of swing back. Like you, I look in the, the marketplace and the stores on the platforms and I see new little titles and I play a bunch of them now because there's really solidly cool games coming out in there that are trying new ideas. And uh, they, that stuff inspires me. Yeah. And that's awesome that, you know, cause I know a lot of developers who don't play as much because, and it makes sense. Don't get me wrong. Cause you know, you're working on something for so long, a game, when you come home, do you want to play more games do you, or do you want to do something separate from your work? So <laughs> it's awesome that you're, you're still dabbling in, in the smaller projects. And I agree that it does bring like that level of innovation and, and you know, you're likely going to see a chance taken there. Um, which, which is why I, I gravitate towards those games a lot more now. Um, and I like to cover those more and, and try to give them, a little more attention using yeah. my platform in a positive way. Um, yeah. Overall, though, I, I don't really have any more questions I, unless you wanted to add anything else about the saboteur. Um, uh, did you work on think. anything else at Pandemic while you were there, or was it just mainly because I know saboteur started a while ago and um, then it got put up, like I said, it, they shifted teams and whatnot, but was there anything else you, you, you messed around with at, at the studio? Yeah, I mean, uh, so I came into Pandemic for the last kind of nine months to a year of Mercs. And it was fun because it was like I, I went from being a – I started my career as a programmer. Mm -hmm. uh, I became a producer towards the end of Black Isle, um, and I hated that. And then they, my, Scott actually is the one that pulled me up to Pandemic. He's like, you're, you're creative. You should be a designer. And so I, I really cut my teeth into that project, and I, I actually – I've been playing that on the back compat on the – the xbox one cool and it's i love that game and like uh <laughs> i put a lot of love into that game i built like four missions and i did a lot of the free play stuff that you do in the game and then that just all of that really led to my love of building open world games like i'd love to build another one someday they're like they're really complicated games 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it, like you look at like what Red Dead has achieved, like that that's incredible. Like they took that to a whole like a very artistic level that I think hasn't been. You know, we'll see when that gets kind of pushed against because that that was a high bar. Um, but yeah, that's a it's a they're fun games to work on, and I'm I'm glad that I had my time at Pandemic. Uh, like I said, I some of my favorite people I've ever worked with. I worked with there, um, and uh, I I'm glad to just see that everybody's kind of moved on and has found a, a good new world. Good, awesome, man. I'm glad. I'm glad that you're happy, uh, regardless of the outcome. Um, certainly makes sense. It's been ten years. I'm acting like an yeah. academic. <laughs> I uh I appreciate you taking the time to do this and um and sharing the stories of of another wonderful game from that studio that that resonates with me quite a bit. It's it's such a good game and I I you know I have obviously been playing all these pandemic games in preparation for this project and um it's just like you know all of them are timeless. It's it's such a special studio. There's really not many out there who just produced uh, hit after hit. It's it's crazy to me. So yeah, it was awesome. It was a good time. Absolutely. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.